So this is Luke chapter 24, uh, starting at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And let me, I just want to pause real quick. Um, if you, you notice, if you were here uh, last week, Jesus was dying on the cross, and uh, now this week, he's um, <laughs> talking with people on the road. What happened? Uh, we, I, the passage in between the actual resurrection of Jesus we talked about in Easter, I did that passage, so I'm actually skipping it now, and now we're into the next scene. It's the same day that he was resurrected, and he meets a couple disciples along the road. So, so that's, uh, if you've been following the story, that's why we skipped over uh, so in verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, uh, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going, uh, going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Uh, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those uh, who with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. As we read about uh, Jesus opening the scriptures, teaching the scriptures to these two disciples who are walking along the road and how their hearts burned within them. Lord, we long for that. We long for our hearts to burn within us after you and about your truth. And we pray that you would teach us um, uh, the way towards that, the means that you've given to us uh, to stir in us love for you and zeal and joy. And uh, I pray that uh, you would be our teacher now. 
you would give me uh, words, that you would give me a mouth, that the meditations, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask for your spirit now to guide us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we are uh, looking uh, at a passage this morning about uh, two disciples who, uh, on the day that Jesus was risen from the dead, they were walking along the path, and they were talking together. It's it's Cleopas and uh, another companion, which most commentators say is probably his wife. And they're walking along, and they're having this discussion, and, uh, and they encounter a man that at first they don't know is Jesus. And it turns out it's Jesus, and he walks along, and he's asking questions, so what happened? And he's kind of getting them out of them, and then he goes into a little sermon and uh, basically gives them a sermon on, uh, on the whole Bible. And I'm, I'm sorry to say my sermon this morning is almost as good as his sermon, maybe, uh, but I think many of us wish we could, there was, uh, you know, an MP3 recorder at that uh, sermon so that we could hear Jesus unpack all the scriptures. But he unpacks uh, the scriptures for them and show how the whole Bible is about him. And then he goes and he breaks bread with them. And uh, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. It's uh, evoking the Lord's Supper. And then they realized it was him when they were having the meal with him. And what's really uh, delightful about this passage is you see the transformation that happens in this couple as they have this interaction with the risen Lord. They, they, you know, it begins by uh, saying uh, there in verse 17, um, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. So there's this kind of sadness and aimlessness about their Christian life. And they've been following Jesus and they believe in Jesus and and they're not sure where it's going. And by the end of the passage, we get this wonderful line. Uh, You know, Luke is is just a mat, you know, well, he picks out certain images that to put in his gospel that um, are, are very compelling. And, and he highlights this line that the couple says in verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And um, I love that image of their hearts were burning within. And they were, there was joy, there was zeal, there was excitement. God was at work. God is alive. God's promises are true. And I imagine that for many of us, that's, uh, we've maybe had that experience or have that experience periodically in our Christian life. And uh, that, it's really been the highlight of our life, those times where we felt the burning of God in our hearts. And yet, also for many of us, and many of you that I've talked to, uh, it seems like that was a time that we had in the past, um, but it's very hard to come across anymore. And we want to feel a zeal. We want to feel a burning and a passion uh, for God, an excitement about what God's doing, an excitement about his word, a burning in our hearts. And we're kind of like, how does that happen? You know, we feel that aimlessness. And um, what, I, what I want to suggest is... That that, well, first of all, that zeal, that joy is a gift from God. It's something that he gives to us. But that there are certain means that he uses to give that to us. Uh, the means of grace. And uh, that little phrase, a means of grace, uh, that's a phrase that comes from, you know, some of you don't know this, but uh, our church has certain doctrinal standards, these kind of confessions that were written actually in the 1640s. 
the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster uh, Larger and Shorter Catechisms, which, and the Shorter Catechism is a, a statement of theology that's in these questions and answers. And there's a great line in, in the confession where it says, it asks this question, what is sanctification? Sanctification is kind of the process of, you know, growing in, in your love for God and, you know, putting to, sin, putting to death sin and, and uh, growing in righteousness. And it says that sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It's something not that you do. The transformation that happens in your heart is not something you do. It's something that God does in you, his grace that works in you. But then later in the confession, in this uh, catechism, it says that God has given certain means uh, that where he works that grace in you. And, you know, it describes the, the word of God, the Bible, and the sacraments, which is the baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer. And I'll tell you what the means are like. It's kind of like a carpenter. You know, a carpenter hammers nails and uh, bangs on two-by-fours and things like that. And you can say, well, you know, the, the, the carpenter is, hammers the nail into the wood. But he has a tool that he uses. He has a hammer that he pounds the nail in with. And you say, well, you know, is the hammer ha- hammering the nail or is the carpenter? Who's doing it? Well, uh, the hammer couldn't do it by itself. It needs the carpenter to do it. But the hammer is the tool. It's the means by which the nail is pounded in. And what God has certain hammers where he pounds his grace into us and he shapes us and he forms us and he works in his life. What are those tools? Well, what we see in this passage in particular is that Jesus is using two of these means of grace, the scriptures. He's opening the scriptures to them and then the breaking of bread. And it's through these two things that their hearts just come alive and they become they start to love God. It's through these simple means of the Bible and bread. And so what I want to talk about this morning, actually, I, I had originally planned to do a sermon on the means of grace, the word of God and the breaking of bread. How does God use these to stir in us burning hearts and love for him? But, you know, I realized I just recently, a few weeks ago, did a whole sermon on the Lord's Supper. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to focus specifically on the scriptures as a means of grace. This is the hammer that God is using to pound his grace into us. I don't know if that's a good image. <laughs> grace seems gentle and, you know, hammer seems kind of aggressive. But, but uh, what's the hammer that God uses to pound his grace? It's the scriptures. And, um, and so what I, there's some really fascinating things in this passage about how the scriptures work. How do we read the scriptures? How do we understand the scriptures? How do they work in our life? And so um, I'm going to highlight just a few things that this passage, I'm really going to focus on just a couple verses in here um, about how God uses the scriptures as a means of grace in our life. Okay? So first of all, the first thing that we see is that the scriptures, they must be read in faith. They must be read in faith. The scriptures must be read in faith. And um, you see that there in verse 25, uh, where Jesus meets these two are talking along the road. And he says, what, what are you guys talking about? And they said, well, there's Jesus, who is this great prophet, and our leaders crucified him. And then these women went to his tomb, and they said he's, his body wasn't there. And they met angels, and they said he's risen. And other people went, and they, they didn't find him either. And uh, this is what Jesus says in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And what he says is that the, um, 
the reason that they're having all this confusion and aimlessness is because they've come to the scriptures without faith. They're not, they don't believe. When they, and and they're basically, in order to read the scriptures well, in order to understand the scriptures, for them to have an impact on your life, you have to read them with faith. You need to believe. Now, you know, a lot of people in our culture would say, well, you know, that's kind of the problem with religious books is they're not like other books where anyone can just kind of walk up and you can use your reason, your logic, and you can reason through them and, and then you can understand them and, and get what you need to out of them. See, religious people say you need to have faith. You need to buy in. Um, I, you know, it's not, it's not reason in thinking. It's, it's this leap of faith before you can even understand the book. It's a very emotionally driven uh, philosophy of reading a book and, and approaching God. That's not, that's not really what I mean when I say that you need faith. Because if you read the Bible, if you try to read the Bible, you're going to find you're going to need a lot of logic. It's a masterfully put together book. Uh, Forty different authors over 1,500 years writing a unified story. And there's all kinds of intricacy. And you need, you need a very sharp mind. You need to be very studious to read this book. But what I mean uh, by the fact that you need faith if you're going to re- understand this book is because this book is a personal word from God. A personal God is speaking to us a personal word. And, um, and that's, it comes from a, a personal God. And the things that God is saying in this book are often very challenging. Uh, they, they speak to the very core of who we are. They're very intimate. They're very, they speak to very vulnerable places of who we are. What do we believe about the world? What do we believe about ourselves? How do we live? All these deep things. And the fact is, that's why you need faith when you come to it. Because you think about it. You know, think if you knew a person, you had a friend, who was going to come and speak into your life, and they were going to tell you about, uh, you know, what you believe about the world and uh, your relationships and how you treat your kids or treat your spouse, and they're going to challenge you about your work and, your, and, and the secrets of your heart, and they're going uh, to judge you. They're going to kind of inspect your life. What kind of attitude? Are you going to receive someone saying that to you uh, if you don't trust that person? <laughs> you know, some stranger comes up that doesn't really know you, and they just start saying very intimate things into your life. What are you going to say? You're going to get very defensive. You say, how dare you start saying, talking this way to me, right? The reason uh, the Bible is going to say things at the very core of who we are. And unless we trust the God that is behind the Bible, that he's good, and that he loves us, and that he intends good for us, unless we believe, we're not going to be willing to receive it. We're going to be on the defensive, and we're going to come to this Bible with our guard up, and it's not going to be able to get down and impact us. And so reading the Bible with faith means coming with the courage to believe that the God who's, reading it, who's writing it, who's speaking to us in it, really loves us. And so we can let our guard down, and we can let it challenge us. Okay? So um, the first thing... And uh, what Jesus, that's exactly um, what Jesus says to these disciples is that they don't trust the God of the scriptures and that's why they don't understand them. Their guards are up, their defenses are up. So the first thing, in order for the Bible to be a means of grace in our life, we need to come with open hearts. We need to come with faith, believing in the God who, who has written it. But secondly, if the scriptures are going to be a means of grace, they must be interpreted. The scriptures must be interpreted. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. Um, Look again at verse 27. Um, Actually, let's go to 26. 
Was it, Jesus says this, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now that word interpreted is a big important word as we talk about the Bible. A lot of people, when they talk about the Bible, it's about interpretations and things. What does it mean to interpret the Bible anyways? You know, what, isn't the Bible, why can't we just believe the words that are there? Why do we have to change the Bible into some other kind of words into an interpretation? Why can't we just take the words that are there? Well, it's interesting, this word that's used for interpret is the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul is talking about speaking in tongues. And he says, listen, if you're going to, you know, when they were, if you're going to have any speaking in tongues going on, ch- on in church, make sure that there's uh, someone there to interpret what they're saying. And what in, to interpret the Bible, uh, to interpret something means to translate it. To take it from a language that I don't understand and put it into a language that I do understand, right? And of course, which, is, of course, is necessary. You know, the Bible is written in a totally different culture than ours, 2,000 years ago in a totally different time. And what we need to do is we need to translate it from who was it talking to in its original context and its original audience and translate it into what does it say in our culture? Speak it in my language. Speak it in, in you know, answering common questions in my life. You need a translation. And, uh, and that's what it means to be interpreted. And um, now, for many of us, the, question, the, the problem... The question of interpretation is one of the biggest problems with the Bible because we say, hey, listen, you know, you have your interpretation, I have my interpretation, you know, who's to say what's, whose interpretation is better? Why do we have to judge, you know, why can't you just let me have my interpretation, you have your interpretation? Christians are always trying to jam their interpretation down my throat. You know, maybe that's not the point. Maybe the point of the Bible isn't to get the answer right or get the right interpretation. It's just my, my experience of the Bible. Um, well, one of the things that you have in this passage is that Jesus says that some interpretations are foolish. Those are his words. Those are my words. But what Jesus says is that the reality is that some interpretations of the Bible are better than others. Some are foolish and some are better. And you see that there in verse 25, oh, foolish ones. He's talking to his disciples. These are people that have walked with him, who know him and believe in him. They're excited about him, and he says that, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What that means is that there are some interpretations of the scripture that are better than others. Now, what makes some interpretations better than others? Well, um, you know, I've been reading a book recently, a C.S. Lewis book called An Experiment in Criticism, and which is a book about uh, Lewis was uh, not just, he didn't just write Christian books. If you know, he, he, was, he wrote books about Christianity, but he was a scholar, and he was a literary critic. And he, this is one of his uh, books that he wrote late in life about literary criticism and about you know, the arts and how do you, if you're going to look at a painting or listen to music and kind of high culture, how do you uh, engage with the arts and listen to them? And this is what he says um, about literary, or actually this is about paintings and observing paintings. This is what he says. We must not let loose our own subjectivity upon the pictures and make them our vehicles. We must begin by laying aside as completely as we can all our own preconceptions, interests, and associations. We need to lay aside our own preconceptions, uh, interests, and associations. We must make room for Botticelli's 
Mars and Venus by emptying out our own. We must use our eyes. We must look and go on looking until we have certainly seen exactly what is there. We sit down before the picture in order to have something done to us, not that we may do things with it. The first demand, now this is an important line, the first demand that any work of art make, uh, makes upon us is surrender. Look, listen, receive, get yourself out of the way. And what, Lu- what Lewis says is the key to a good interpretation of the Bible is the act of surrender. That I'm not taking the things that I already believe, that I already think about the world, and I'm going to go impose them on the Bible so that the Bible confirms the things that I already want to say. It's, coming, it's letting what I already believe aside and come and let the Bible speak for itself. And what is it trying to say? Um, and what we see uh, in this passage is that the disciples' interpretation of the Scriptures was foolish because... They had certain things that they wanted to see in the Bible. There are certain things they wanted the Bible to say. And you see, look at verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, what does that mean, redeem Israel? Well, to redeem means to buy out of slavery, to free from slavery. And what their hope was, what slavery were they thinking of? They're like, we're under the oppression of the Romans. We thought someone was going to come and liberate us from the Romans. And so they had this idea of we're going to have a Messiah who's going to come and win a big battle and he's going to put us in charge and we're going to be rich and wealthy and powerful. And, uh, and that's what they wanted to see. And so they skipped over certain passages of the Bible that said it wasn't true. So that, that's what Jesus says in verse 25, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You looked at the verses you wanted that said what you wanted to hear, but you didn't look at the verses that said something different. And um, this is the heart of, you know, really a foolish reading uh, of the Bible, is that we come to the Bible for it to say the things that we want it to say. So there's all kinds of things. You know, we could come and say, I I went to the Bible, I found out Jesus was a Republican, or I found that Jesus was a a feminist, or it was an environmentalist, or Jesus was a capitalist, or uh, whatever it is, we come with our ideology, we we come and we want Jesus on our team. And so we don't come to the Bible and surrender, we come looking for an ally, and someone who's not going to challenge us, but who's going to confirm to us what we already believe. And that's the heart of bad interpretations of the Bible. And, you know, I'll tell you, this is... Uh, my first uh, year in seminary, I went to seminary in 2006, and uh, before I went to seminary, I was a mathematician, uh, and I was, I was working on a PhD, and I just started, I was only about a year into a PhD program at the University of Washington, but uh, that, that was kind of how I read the Bible, was kind of as a mathematician, and I had developed, you know, a whole uh, world of theology, and what I found, I realized this was a class that I took in seminary showed me that when I went to the Bible, I didn't go to the Bible and surrender, asking God to speak me, asking God to challenge and change me. I went to the Bible so that the Bible confirmed to me all the theology that I already believed. And I was looking for verses that were going to build up my case so that when I got into an argument with someone, I was ready, I was ready <laughs> with my ammo. And that I came to the scripture wanting it to pat me on the back and massage my ego. And it wasn't surrender. 
And uh, that was, a, and one of the things that I found also is that when I came to the Bible that way, not only was I not listening to the Bible, but I wasn't listening to other people, and the things that they had to teach me. And some of you, you know, some of you know me. Maybe I, I'm still like this. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, I still have some of that in me. And um, the reality is um, that surrender uh, to the Bible humbles us. And um, and what that means is that sorry, let me see right here. Um, now the the reality is that when we come to the Bible, we say, "Listen, I need to I need to let down what I already believe." And what I already believe is always in question. It's always ready to be challenged by the Bible. That doesn't mean that all interpretations of the Bible are as good as is the next. What it means is that everyone's interpretation of the Bible is an approximation. And then no matter how good your, your interpretation of the Bible is, it's still not the perfect thing. It's an approximation. And uh, there's a great, uh, N.T. Wright, is, who's one of the great New Testament scholars in the world, I, almost every talk I've heard him say where he's at a conference and he's talking about the, the Bible, he begins by saying, now, I'm pretty confident that about a quarter of what I'm about to tell you is wrong, um, but I'm not sure which quarter it is, so I, I'm going to just tell you it all. And I think that's a great stance of humility. He says, I know most of what I believe, most of what I say, I think it's true. And I think you need to deal with it. And yet, I'm, I'm willing to listen. Because I know that what I'm going to say is still an approximation of the Bible. I still need to surrender to it. I still need for it to operate on me. And cut things out of how I think and how I see God and how I view people and how I view myself. I still need it to operate on me. And so the key is the Bible must be translated or it must be interpreted. It must be brought into our world. It must be summarized and figure out what what the heart of it was it mean. But we need to understand also that we do that humbly. And that we're always bringing an agenda to the Bible, every single one of us. And we need to be analyzing ourselves and guarding against it. Okay. So second, the Bible must be interpreted. Now, the question is, are there how do you, are there any principles? Is there any rule are there any rules of thumb for reading the Bible that'll help me to read the Bible well? Well, that leads to our third thing about the Bible is that when we read the scriptures, they must be read to be about Jesus. They must be read to be about Jesus. The what the scripture is about is ultimately Jesus. And um, before I show you that in the text, let me say there, there are a lot of different ways to read the Bible. Um, you know, there's a kind of, this has been predominant, at least in the last century in America, is a very moralistic reading of the Bible. That the Bible is telling you about how to live, good, how, what good things you should do to be a good person. So actually, recently I was, uh, I, I was in a... Uh, a little class for children where uh, a teacher was teaching a Bible story and it wasn't in this church. Um, and the sweet, sweet godly lady that was uh, teaching the Bible and she was teaching the story about Jacob in, the, in Genesis where Jacob uh, goes up to Isaac, his father, and he dresses up like his older brother Esau. And Isaac is blind. And so he uh, tricks Isaac and lies to him and says, yeah, I'm Esau. Will you give me your blessing? And so Isaac puts the blessing on Jacob, and, uh, and he was deceived. And that's how Jacob got the blessing was because he lied. And as the, uh, the teacher is kind of telling the story to the children, he say, now what's, what's this story about, children? You shouldn't lie. Lying is bad. 
Look at, look at what he's doing. He's lying. Are you going to lie? Stop lying. Good Christian boys and girls don't lie. And I'm sitting there thinking, how do you get that out of this story? Yeah, there's a liar in the story, but it doesn't say anywhere that you shouldn't lie. If anything, the story is that here's the patriarch, the father of the faith, Jacob, and he's a liar. <laughs> and he didn't lose the promises. And God didn't abandon him. And yet what happens later in the story is that God comes to him as an angel and wrestles with him. He says, tell me your name. What's your name? You're not going to lie to me. I'm going to know the real you. God's going God's to pull out the real you. And it's, it's much more a story about God's faithfulness, not about us being stopped lying. It's, it's that we're liars and God is still faithful to us. And the promise wasn't thrown out. And you see, that's a totally different reading of the story. So we can come to the Bible and say, and what you have to be on guard on is that we're prepared to read the Bible as I'm going to find a story of how to live a good life. And I'm going to meet a bunch of people who loved God and did a lot of good things. I dare you to try it. Read the Old Testament. You won't find one person in there that you want to model your life after. I mean, look at, uh, look at David, David, the man after God's own heart. He committed adultery, and then to cover it up, he, he murdered the gal's husband, had him killed. You want to be like that? No. It is not showing you how to live a good life. It is showing you this is what God is like. This is God's faithfulness. So we can come to the Bible and have a moralistic reading of the Bible. Another way, this is what I just kind of shared with you is my tendency, is that the Bible, we could see that the Bible is, is a problem. You know, it's this big story. It's got all these, it's got poems, it's got history, it's got letters in it, and it's a big confusing mess. Let's tidy it up. And wouldn't it have been much easier if God just gave us a textbook that told us the things to believe? And so what we do is we chop up the Bible and we make it into a textbook that tells us these are the doctrines that you should believe. And we spend our whole time trying to uh, unstory the Bible and make it into a textbook. And we're missing what it's trying to do. And um, both of these approaches to the Bible, this kind of rationalistic, make it into a textbook, or the moralistic reading of the Bible, neither of these readings have any life in them. They don't produce life in you. And uh, what it says here, what Luke says here, um, in verse 27, is that when Jesus began to explain the Bible, it says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he's, you know, and by the way, in the, old the Bible that they're looking at, the scriptures is the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. So he's talking about the old, old Testament with Moses and all the prophets. He's going through the Old Testament. He interpreted it to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's saying um, that the whole Bible, the whole of the Old Testament, is a story, and that's what the Old Testament was, is a story that was looking for an ending. It was a story that was looking for a hero. And it was continually asking, when's the hero going to come? When's the hero going to come? And the hero comes in Jesus. And so you can look back in the Old Testament, and you can find out this whole thing is preparing you for Jesus. You know, so if you just take, you know, the first couple books, Genesis, how does Genesis begin? God spoke, and he created the, the universe. And we find out later that Jesus is the word of God. There's Jesus. He's creating the world. And, uh, and uh, God made humans after the image of God. And what is Jesus? He's not just made after the image of God. He's not just a replica. He is the actual image of God. And, and then there's Adam who's put in the garden. And, God, and uh, Adam uh, disobeys God by going to a tree. And death comes to all of humanity. What does Jesus do? 
he, he doesn't disobey God. He obeys God by going to a tree, the cross. And instead of death coming to all of humanity, the offer of salvation comes to all of humanity. He's the second Adam. And you look at Abel. Abel was murdered by his brothers and, he, uh, and uh, murdered by his brother Cain. And his blood is on the ground crying out for justice. Jesus was murdered by his brothers. And his blood cries out for forgiveness for us. He's the better Abel. He's the better Noah. Noah, who, who made an ark and said, brought all, whoever came onto the ark were, were, was saved from God's wrath. Jesus brings people to him. And when you're united to Christ, you're saved from God's wrath. Jesus is the better Abraham. Abraham uh, left his father's house to start a family who would be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus left his father's house to start a family brothers and sisters who would be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, Jesus is a better Joseph. Joseph, who uh, was betrayed by his brothers and left for dead and then rose again to become the, the second in command of Egypt so that he could feed all the world uh, bread. What does Jesus do? He's left for dead by his brothers, and he doesn't just rise up to be second in command to Pharaoh. He becomes king of the whole world, and he's seated at the right hand, and he brings uh, all nations to come together and to eat his bread, and he feeds. He says, I'm the bread of life. Jesus is a better Moses, right? Moses comes, and uh, he writes the Ten Commandments on, uh, on, on tablets of stone. Jesus writes his law on our hearts so that we can actually do it. And Moses leaves us condemned. He condemns us with God's law, but Jesus forgives us and empowers us and gives us freedom to actually do what God wants to do. Jesus is a better Passover, the Passover lamb that the blood covers us so the wrath of God will pass over us. Jesus is the, is the bread of life. Jesus is a better Joshua who leads us in, into the promised land and, uh, and cleanses it. You know, Joshua went and cleansed the land. Jesus cleanses the whole earth and draws nations to himself, not by slaughtering them, but by making them his friends and drawing them to himself. The whole story over and over again is you read, I'm just giving you a few little touches and some of you might say, I don't know who any of those people are that you're talking about. Like, <laughs> what is all that? Well, let me just tell you, you've got a whole story here that's pointing you to the Jesus that we're falling in love with. The whole thing is pointing to him. And do you see how f- short we fall when we say it's about morals? It's about how to live a good life? And I'll tell you, if you go into that Old Testament and you're going to say, well, I'm starting, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have an inspiring time in my Bible. And now I'm going to read about Samson. And I'm going to... Having it be inspired of how to be good, you won't be inspired. <laughs> you won't be inspired. They're not there. The only hero in the Bible is God, and you can't be him. It's more about what God's doing for you, not what you're doing for him. And when we read the Bible, the way that Jesus says, he says that when he gave his sermon, he unpacked all the scriptures and showed the things that were concerning him. And when you see that, that's when life begins to stir in you. That's when you become alive, when you see the promises of God and what he's done for us in Christ. And, um, you know, I I put a little blurb in your bulletin if you turn to page three. This is from the Jesus Storybook Bible. The Jesus Storybook Bible does a really good job of showing that Jesus is the hero. But in the intro, it has this great couple paragraphs that I love. It says, no, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are are lots of stories in the Bible 
But all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, uh, there's... Oh, gosh, I didn't write the whole thing. The <laughs> center of the story is a baby. And someone finish it for me. I, I didn't put it... <laughs> I didn't type it all into my... Skip it. You read it. Okay. <laughs> you get the idea. The story is about Jesus. <laughs> and uh, let me just... Uh, So uh, the great thing about the Bible is that it's not about what we're doing, but it's about what God has done and is doing for us. And this leads to the next thing, is that when we get that, we see the next thing that the, that the gospel, that the scriptures do in our lives is that they must ignite our hearts. The scriptures must ignite our hearts. And um, you see this, that... You know, after after uh, Jesus meets this couple and, and he gives a sermon to them on the whole Bible, and they're walking with him and they come to their house and he says, "Listen, you gotta uh, you gotta stay." They say, "You gotta stay with us on the night for the night. Have dinner with us. We gotta spend more time with you." So he says, and, uh, and he goes in to spend time with them. And you know, you should we should note that uh, it's the Lord's Day. This is this is the day when Jesus was raised. It was still that very day. That's what we celebrate Sunday. And uh, so he gives them a little sermon, and now he's going to have a little communion with them. Uh, a little, he's doing what we're doing here. <laughs> and, uh, and then it says in verse 32, Jesus kind of uh, disappears after that. And then it says, and they said to each other, the couple says, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did not our hearts burn within us? And um, I think that summarizes what... Um, what we can hope for in our Christian life is a life that's ignited, that's on fire, that's burning for God and has zeal and is amazed and compelled by, by who Jesus is and what he's doing. And, um, and I think the thing for us to see is that the way that that was stirred in them was through the scriptures. Jesus used the scriptures uh, to create, to stir that in us. Um, but, you know, Luke also writes a second volume. Luke is a two-volume series. So he first wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And in the beginning of the book of Acts, it says that, uh, Acts chapter 2, that when the Holy Spirit came uh, upon the disciples, it came in the floor, it looked like fire. And that fire in the burning of the heart is the Holy Spirit um, being at work in our heart and, uh, and that's really what was at work in them. As the scriptures were working, the spirit was working. And throughout the Bible, there's this close relationship between the word of God and the spirit of God. And so that actually in places like Galatians, it says, how did you receive the spirit? It came through hearing the word, through hearing the gospel. And so there's this relationship uh, between these two things. And, um, you know, I, I think this is important that, you know, for many of us, we want to study the Bible. We want to be interested in the Bible. We want to, uh, you know, have times at home where we sit and we read. And one of the things that's important to understand is that in order for the Bible to be exciting, that is something that the Spirit has to do in your heart. And so what that means is we come to the Scriptures. We need to invite God's Spirit to come and open the Scriptures for us, to teach us, to say what's there. And this is a step, I don't know if you're like me, this is often a step that we, uh, we skip over. Uh, as we read the Bible, is that we don't begin by just simply asking God, will you give me your spirit to open the scriptures? If you find that, if you read the Bible and you say, this feels dead, this feel, there's nothing here, I'm not engaged with this, then simply ask God to give you his spirit. 
And he will. You know, I, I don't know if you're like me, but I have this feeling that if I ask God for his spirit, I, I, for some reason, I need to really have really meant it when I, you know, it's like I need to feel it in order to ask God to have the spirit so that I can feel it, you know. And, uh, and so I don't ask because I say, well, do I really want it? And, you know, God's not like that. He's, you know, you think of your children. Your children, they come and they ask for food. He's, and you say, well, do you really mean that in your heart that you want a bowl of cereal? Like, do you really, like, are you really feeling that? Like, I really want it. Or, or did they, they just say, can I have some cereal? How simple does it have to be? And you know what the Bible says is that asking for the Spirit is like asking for cereal. That's what, that's what it says. It's that simple. Father, I want, I want to read your word. Can I have your Spirit? Would you pour your Spirit into my heart? It's really simple. You don't have to really believe it and, and try hard and beat yourself up for three hours in order for God to give you Spirit. You just ask him. And he does. He's a good father. And that's what, that's, it's essential that we have the Spirit given to us if we're um, going to read the Scriptures. And, you know, I was just recently, I was at a pastor's, maybe I shared this with you, but uh, I was at a pastor's gathering here in Bellingham. Um, and we were going around, and uh, someone had raised a question about men's ministry in their church. And they said, you know, how do you get men excited about the Bible and about theology and about mission and God's work? How do you get them engaged? And everyone kind of went around and said, well, I do one-on-ones, and I find one-on-ones are really helpful, or I read a book with them, and I, uh, or I go on retreats. And all very good, helpful ideas. I was encouraged by all of them. I was like, wow, these are all, these are all good ideas. And then it came to this last guy, who's a pastor I really respect here in town, and, and he said, you know, the reality is we can't stir up people's hearts to want to love God and love his word. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to do in them. So if you want men's ministry, if you want men excited, pray for them. Pray that the Holy Spirit comes on their hearts, that they become excited. And I thought about it. You know, I was thinking about my own life. I was like, who, who started a small group or, you know, who sat down with me? And, and all those things, God certainly brought people into my life. God was certainly challenging me. But really at the heart of why my life changed, that's why I loved the scriptures, was because the Holy Spirit was just giving me a desire. And God invites you to simply just ask him. As you go and you sit down and read the scriptures, ask God um, to, uh, to, to teach you and to give you a desire. One last observation about the scriptures as a means of grace in this passage is simply that they must be opened. The scriptures must be opened. And um, you, you see that there again in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he taught them the scriptures? while he opened to us the scriptures. Now, what does that mean, the scriptures need to be opened? Well, I'm going to say, first of all, they literally need to be opened. <laughs> the book needs to be opened uh, in, order to, in order to understand what's there. And, you know, I mean, that, that's one of the things that Jesus is doing in this conversation with them, is they're asking all these questions, and he's constantly bringing them back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? You've got to read it. You've got to understand it. And... Um, and, you know, I'll tell you that over the past century in American kind of evangelical church and American Christianity, there has been become a kind of overemphasis on the quiet time. Um, the quiet time has, which is a, usually, I think it's an hour. I, I don't know what the exact uh, rule is, but uh, that you spend every day in, with the Bible and, uh, and in prayer. And basically, 
this is the thing of whether you're a real Christian or not. Do you have the quiet time? And that's become the kind of test. And I certainly, you know, the heart behind that is, is a good one, that, that for us to commune with God, that Jesus does do that. He, he goes off alone to be with God, and he prays and to read the scriptures. And, um, and um, but, you know, there can be a... Uh, there's a broader sense in which the scriptures are something that are in our lives, partly in quiet times, partly in church, partly in home groups. There are all kinds of places where um, we need to be in places where the scriptures are actually opened and talked about and read. And I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of you say, you know, I'd really like to read the Bible more on my own. I've had a number of you people in our church uh, asked me about this, and um, let me just say a few things about reading the scripture. This might be helpful. Take it or leave it if, um, if these are helpful. Um, but I'm going to ask answer kind of a, a what, how, where, and when of, of reading the scriptures. And first, um, what should I read? What? If I'm going to sit down and I am going to read the Bible, and I'm going to study it, what should I read? Um, you know, I, I'll tell you what was helpful for me when I first became a Christian. I had I had one Christian friend that I saw once every three weeks for about 20 minutes. And I'd ask him, all right, what do I do? I'm trying to be a Christian. How do I do this? I couldn't go to church. I was in a school where I couldn't go to church. And he says, well, I'd, I'd just pray. I'd get a Bible. He said I'd read Matthew. You know, if the whole Bible's about Jesus, why don't you start there? Start reading about Jesus. Just read through Matthew. And then read through Acts. He's like, there's all these miracles and stuff. It's pretty cool. You like that. And then, uh, and then he said, why don't you, you know, read Genesis and Exodus. Those are kind of important books in the Bible. Why don't you read those and uh, just read through them. They're stories. Read through them like any other book. And then I read some of the New Testament letters. And, you know, one of the things I found, if you haven't read the Bible much, there are a bunch of letters in the New Testament. They're very rich. that You can sit down and read the whole thing in 15 minutes. It's, they're very short. It's, uh, it doesn't take a lot of time. And, and for me, that was gratifying to read a New Testament letter, and I could kind of uh, check it off. Wow. Uh, Philemon was a page, and I've read that book now. You know, that felt good. So go to the New Testament letters, read those, and, uh, and, that's, and, and that will be encouraging. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just tell, share with you a little bit of my personal Bible reading that, I, you know, when I read You know, first of all, I, I should tell you, the number of days in a week that I have a devotional, I would, I would say on average about three. So uh, if you feel a huge burden to have a, a Bible study every single day, I, I'd like to. There's times in my lives when I, when I do. In the last six months, it's probably three days a week. I mean, I, 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 I have, you know, obviously during the week I'm preparing a sermon, reading the Bible and things like that. But um, I, I don't really count that as devotional time. It's kind of work. It feels different. It, you know, um, I'm certainly asking the Lord to teach me during the time. But, you know, I, I, I'll have a devotional time. I have a home group where we open the scriptures together. We had Mon Flesh this last week on Wednesdays, a men's group. We open the scriptures. You come here on Sunday. You open the scriptures. And so there's this integration of both um, I'm having personal time with the Lord, which is very important for me personally, but I'm also I'm doing it in groups. I'm, I'm learning from brothers and sisters in Christ. And so being present in these Settings where the Bible is open is terribly important. And when I read the Bible, I'll tell you what I do. I usually start with a psalm um, that kind of gets my heart prepared. It's a prayer. I read one psalm. A lot of times I'll read a proverb or, or a chapter of Proverbs. And then, um, and then I, I'll move on to, uh, to read usually an Old Testament book or a New Testament book. And then, um, so, you know, these are just some things. You, the, the key is find what works for you. 
And find a place that you like to read. If you're going to read the Bible, find a place that you like, a setting that is good. You know, I, for a while, I've only had one place in my house where I could read the Bible. It was Henry's room. And there's all these diaper decors in there. I don't know if you know what a diaper decor is, a trash can for diapers. And so, you know, I'm just praying and, oh, Lord, feels good to be in your presence. And, you know, diaper smells are, you know, if, if you can avoid that, be in a place where you like to be. You like a cup of tea, a blanket. Be in a place you're an embodied person. Your body matters. The setting matters. You know, if, you, if you're being with your spouse, you know, you like to be in a setting that's nice. You know, if you go out to a nice dinner or something, make it a place so that it's enjoyable to read the, read the word and be with the Lord. Um, uh, when, when should you do it? Uh, you know, I'll just, uh, you know, you don't have to be too regimented. I mean, I'm kind of a morning person. I like reading in the morning. But find a place, time when you're attentive and that you can read and commit yourself to it. But I, I think that a big key is have other places in your life where you're opening the scripture. So, you know, being at church every week, the scriptures are being opened here every single week. So if you want to have the scriptures in your life, being present here, you're going you're gonna to sit and you're going to listen to me for 40 minutes. I don't know how long I've been right now, but 40 minutes uh, teaching the scriptures. And you're going to hear me read a passage that maybe you've never heard that passage before. And God's going to be using that in your life. Uh, be, you know, be in a home group. Or, you know, and one thing I would say when you're here, you hear me say something that you thought was interesting or raise questions for you. You know, when we're sitting having donuts after having coffee and you're talking with someone, say to them, you know, what do you think about what Nate said about, you know, interpretation or about, uh, what do you think about that? Invite conversation. Ask questions. Be inquisitive. You know, the people who learn the Bible and who grow the most in terms of the Bible are the people who ask questions. And they admit that I didn't understand that. That part that he was talking about that he just glazed over, I didn't really understand it. Ask someone standing here and get into a conversation. Maybe they didn't understand it either. And then you go ask someone else. Create conversation around the scriptures. It's not simply the quiet time, but the quiet time is a piece, but also of being a life of studying the scriptures together. And through this, um, uh, God uh, stirs zeal and fire within us. And, um, you know, but I should say that... uh, that Jesus, or what Luke, or what they say here, that when Jesus opened the scriptures to them, it meant that he taught them the scriptures. And it is important also for us to be taught the scriptures. And um, I just kind of talked a little bit about that. So <laughs> skip over. Sorry, I'm all over the place today. Okay, so um, let me just let me just wrap up. Uh, the God has given us means to experience his grace. And if you're going to, if you ask the question, where is that going to happen? Where is it going to happen that God's going to stir love in my heart? Just know that it's going to happen when you're interacting with this book. Somewhere. Personally, in church, in relationships, it's going to come through an interaction of this book, and especially an interaction of this book that points you to Jesus. And so uh, let me just encourage you, uh, um, put yourself in that place. And then God's power, the carpenter, he'll pound his grace into you. And uh, so that's, that's really the reason that in our church I'm reading through books of the Bible is because I know that this is the means of grace in my life and in yours. And so uh, may God make us a church that loves his word. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that it is a personal God who's speaking a personal word to us. 
Give us faith as we come to it. Help us to uh, understand it. And would you be our teacher? Would you give us your spirit that would uh, ignite our hearts, that we would come alive as we see that the whole scripture is pointing to Jesus? And uh, would we continue to learn and grow in this church? And we ask this in Jesus' name.